You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb joined the Washington Post to discuss the latest developments in creating a coronavirus vaccine and more. Let's listen. Hello and welcome everybody to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steve Sellers. I'm a senior writer at the Washington Post. And today we're going to be talking with two of the nation's leading medical experts about where we stand with the coronavirus pandemic and where we're heading. In a little while, it'll introduce you to Zeke Emanuel, who's a physician, a health reform advocate, and a vice provost at the University of Pennsylvania. But first, let me welcome former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, who's also an informal advisor to the White House. Thank you both for joining us today, and thank you to our audience. Dr. Gottlieb, as an informal advisor to the White House, could you tell us what to make of the conflicting reports about whether the uh, task force will be closing or not? I gather this morning President Trump tweeted that it would continue indefinitely. What are the practical implications? Well, I'm not that well informed about um, the internal discussions around the task force, so I'll just state that up front. Um, you know, I'm doing some advisory work for the uh, for the task force over the course of the last several months or last couple of months. But, um, you know, I saw the president's statement this morning. It sounds like the task force is going to continue indefinitely, focusing more on the reopening uh, and some of the issues going forward. I would expect a lot of the dialogue to shift to um, therapeutics as well. I think that you're going to see an increasing emphasis on trying to bring more organization leadership around the development of therapeutics uh, so for COVID-19. Yeah, therapeutics and vaccines, but also the things that the government can affect here, which is trying to bring more coordination around clinical development and also trying to bring greater resources and government involvement in the scale up of manufacturing. I think the more that we can do these things in parallel, the more likely we are to be able to secure uh, sufficient doses of a vaccine in time if we're able to get one to the market that's safe and effective. So that brings me to a question about the federal plan for reopening. Where does that stand at the moment, particularly with the rise in cases in some rural areas around the country? Yeah, well, look, I think that it's state by state, obviously. I think you're going to see some more announcements from the different governors going forward, particularly in the Northeast, more granular proposals going forward. And I've been talking to and working with some of those governors. Um, the reality is that in the Northeast, you see cases and hospitalizations going down. But elsewhere around the country, you see hospitalizations, deaths, and cases going up. Now, some of the reporting on the increase in uh, cases is, a, is an artifact of greater testing. We're capturing more cases. But certainly the hospitalizations are an objective measure, albeit a lagging indicator, but an objective measure. And so it's an indication that around the country, once you back out the tri-state region in the New York um, area, uh, this is still expanding. There's 20 states where you see cases rising. Um, there's 30 states with 250 or more cases a day that they're reporting. And those trends are continuing. Um, I just put up the latest data on Twitter. And, and in fact, you see another spike in, in hospitalizations and cases and deaths around the country. So the reality is that we're going to be reopening, and it does appear that we're reopening. I think that there's a lot of pressure on governors, um, and there's a lot of economic hardship and public health consequences of the shutdown. But we're going to be reopening against the backdrop of, at the very least, stable infection at a very high level, but probably rising infection in many parts of the country. And so we have to hope that people continue to take measures to social distance. We have to hope that there's a seasonal effect here that's going to be a backstop against spread going into the summer or else we can see um, you know, sharp rises in the number of cases. Number of cases are certainly gonna go up. They're not gonna go down as we reopen. We always expected that, that we, we would see a spike in cases. The question is how much. So tell us a little bit, there's been a report out of Los Alamos recently 
about the potential for a mutation of this virus, which could make it more contagious. Is that something you're concerned about looking into the summer and beyond? Well, I think that that Los Alamos study um, has to be taken into perspective. What the study was was a computational analysis showing that uh, a certain strain with a particular uh, genetic change in the sequence that codes for the spike protein, which is the part of the virus that um, it uses to invade human cells, there was a single amino acid base pair change. And that strain became predominant in Europe and then became predominant in the U.S. And they concluded, based on that analysis, that this strain must be more infective, must be more contagious, because that's why it became the dominant strain. But it could be what we call founder's effect. It could be that this strain just got into Europe and then became epidemic there. And Europe heavily seeded the United States, and mm -hmm. so it became epidemic here. There's nothing to suggest um, biologically that it's more infectious. Some, something similar happened with Ebola, where there was two strains of Ebola. There was a single base pair change in the region that infected human cells. At that time, we had some cell culture studies as well, and there was a conclusion drawn that it was more—it was a more infectious strain of Ebola, and there was a lot of press around that at the time. It turned out when we put those two strains into animal studies, they turned out to be equivalent in terms of their, their infective ability. And so it's really early, and I think premature to conclude from the Los Alamos study anything at all, and certainly conclude that this is a more infectious, more transmissible strain. You sounded the alarm, though, about the danger of this virus back in January. Why did the White House not listen to you then? Excuse me, I missed the... I missed the Sorry. Uh, you sounded the alarm in early January about the danger of this virus. Why did you not get a response from the, the White House at that point? Why did they not... Well, you know, I was having discussions with um, with officials. Um, you know, I remember the very first phone call I made to a, to a senior White House official about this. It was the day that the SIDRAP report came out showing that the number of cases in Wuhan had quadrupled from 50 reported cases to almost 200. It was about 180. I remember the exact day. Um, and there were White House officials that I was talking to all the way through about my concerns here, and I think that they shared my concerns. And so there were people in the government, I think, who shared concerns around this, um, you know, we can sort of armchair quarterback what could have been done earlier around this. But um, but there were people who were concerned that this had pandemic potential. And some of that reporting has come out now, including by your newspaper. So you have worried about a potential fall outbreak. How long do you think this virus is going to be with us? And what can we do now to try to prevent the kind of crippling economic lockdown we've got at the moment? Well, I think that the risk is so. So we're, we're going to start to reopen the economy, um, but you know the reality is that the economy is not going to reopen in the way that we would want, so long as this virus is circulating. I think consumers are still going to be very nervous about doing the kinds of things and reengaging in the kind of activity that it did before, and so there's going to be a persistent drag on the economy, so long as this is circulating at levels sufficient to create enough concern that that it it's spreading and that you can catch it. And so I don't know what the economy actually looks like in a backdrop where we haven't really snuffed out the spread of this virus to a lower level than what it currently um, is at. And so the, the worry that I have is we, we reopen against this backdrop of persistent spread of about 30,000 cases a day, which is probably more like 300,000 cases a day, because we're probably diagnosing 1 in 10 to 1 in 20 infections. And, and the seroprevalence studies seem to show that. We sort of simmer through the summer at those levels. Maybe it goes up. You saw the CDC um, preliminary analysis that they put up, which they showed a spike in infections. But but assuming an optimistic scenario where it doesn't go up, maybe it remains um, at worst stagnant through the summer and there is a seasonal effect here. Maybe it even goes down in July and August 
in the depth of the summer as H1N1 did in 2009. Nonetheless, there'll still be enough persistent spread that it could come back in the fall in a more robust way, and we face the risk of renewed outbreaks in the fall, especially heading into flu season. That's my concern, that, that this collides with flu season. And is there anything you, you know, you have said that mitigation hasn't worked as well as you had hoped. What did you mean by that, and how should we be doing things differently? Well, look, it depends on what you, how you view mitigation. The, the primary objective of mitigation was to, as we said, um, push down the epidemic curve, suppress the infection um, to the point where the healthcare system wouldn't become saturated, wouldn't become overwhelmed. We knew when, when you put in place those mitigation steps, what you do is you, you flatten the curve, you basically push it down. So the peak is lower, but you extend it out. So you end up with a longer epidemic as a result of mitigation, and we knew that. But I think what, what has surprised people and some of us, including me, quite frankly, is that I, I felt at this point, after a, a month of those mitigation steps and social distancing, you'd start to see sustained declines in new cases. We really haven't seen that nationally. We've seen it in the Northeast. We've certainly seen it in California, parts of California, Pacific Northwest, Los Angeles. We have not seen that. But around most of the country, you have not seen sustained declines in new cases outside of certain states like Ohio, Idaho. Louisiana has demonstrated that. Hawaii shows a very steep epidemic curve, sharp up, sharp down. So there are states that where you see a resolution, but around most of the country, you don't see that. And in fact, what you're seeing is a rising number of cases. And so that, that has surprised me. I thought that at this point, we'd see more of a sustained decline and that we'd be reopening in May because there was always an expectation we'd be sort of right. compelled to reopen in May given the economic hardship, but we, we'd be reopening in May against the backdrop of much less infection. So you've talked about the three T's in, with this regard, testing, contact tracing, and treatment. Why is the U.S. so far behind on testing? And can we reopen without efficient testing and effective, accurate testing? Yeah, well, we've had a, we've had a dramatic scale-up in testing when you look at what's happened over the last month or six weeks. We're testing about 1.5 million a day. I suspect by the end of May, we'll be testing 2 million a day, uh, maybe more. And, and I think by the fall, we're going to have such robust capacity that the issue is not going to be the capacity to do testing, but it's going to be a question around the sites and whether or not primary care sites are willing to test for coronavirus. But the reality is we got a late start. Things that happened in, in late February and March should have happened in January. And had we in January, you know, started to engage the commercial labs and the academic labs and spin them up and get them into the game, had we started to engage companies that had the ability to put these kinds of tests on, on point of care platforms and develop antigen-based tests, we would have had that technology available by the end of February, early March, certainly, probably earlier than that. But but we got a late start. And so you, the, the reality is because we got a late start, we're going to get a late finish. And the capacity that we you know would have wanted in April and May, we're going to have in June and July. So that brings me to a reader question I'm hearing from people listening in. This is a question from Bridget Dreary that I'd like to read in Virginia. She says, in times of crisis, how do you balance relying on proven frameworks and methods while still encouraging creative and innovative solutions? Well, I, I think we have been um, you know, improvising as we go. We've never dealt with a pandemic before. I mean, we, we, we are playing off of a playbook in terms of the mitigation that we implemented, but um, we are improvising as we go to try so to... Uh, because we've had so many um, warnings about pandemics. We've had SARS, we've had MERS, we have flu, we have respiratory illness every single year, and every five years we have bad flu. And public health officials have warned about pandemics for decades. So, yeah, I think, 
Yeah, I think a lot of the pandemic planning was geared towards influenza. I'm not sure that we ever anticipated a pandemic with a coronavirus, even though we should have given the outbreaks of MERS and SARS to your point. But there was always a thought that if there was a pandemic strain of influenza, we'd be able to get to a vaccine more quickly. And so the mitigation was intended to be a bridge to a vaccine. Mitigation isn't a bridge to a resolution. And so that's what, that's the challenge we're facing right now. We've implemented the mitigation. We've spared the healthcare system from being overwhelmed. We've managed to, to push down the peak of the epidemic curve. But a bridge to what? It's a bridge to persistent spread. And ultimately, we're going to need a technological solution in order to fully resolve this. And that technological solution, unfortunately, is going to take longer than it would have if this was perhaps an influenza where we have more experience developing therapeutics and vaccines. So when do you think we could have a vaccine? Well, I think that we'll hopefully have a vaccine, assuming that the vaccines that are currently in development and in clinical trials, um, and it was a clinical trial announced um, yesterday by Pfizer, a company I'm on the board of a very robust phase one, phase two study that's going to be conducted here in the U.S. They're one of a number of companies that have candidates. Assuming that those vaccines show success in early stage phase one studies, show, show success in safety studies, and show that they're they generate immunogenicity, they generate an antibody response that's predictive that they could provide immunity. I think that we're going to have an, enough vaccine to uh, run large-scale studies in the fall. And I suspect those studies are going to be run in the context of outbreaks. So if we do have outbreaks in a large American city, yeah. what we're likely to do is use hundreds of thousands of doses of those vaccines experimentally still, but in large protocols where we're both trying to ring-fence the outbreak as well as turn over the card on whether the vaccines are safe and effective for general use. And so you do what's called a step wedge cluster randomization, which is basically you randomize sequential intervals of the population to the vaccine and look at whether the time in which you got vaccinated affected your, the propensity of different populations of people to get the virus. You, you randomize one group to early intervention, one group to yeah. mid-intervention, and one to late intervention, and then you compare the three groups. Feel as if we've only just got started, but we're going to need to wrap up and thank you very much for joining us today. So that's Thanks, all we do have time for, but please everybody else stay tuned. I'll be back after a short video to talk with Dr. Zeke Emanuel, who as I said, is a physician, a health reform advocate and the vice provost at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you, Dr. Gottlieb. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com dot com.